Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Mike. I am the Worship and Connections Pastor here, if we haven't met yet. So, uh, really excited to uh, just be here on stage. So, um, hope you all are staying well and being healthy and all that good stuff, especially since it's the new year. Right, we're all being healthy now. Um, so, we've been in this series called Emotions the past couple of weeks, and we've talked about a couple of different emotions that, uh, just some tough stuff to talk about. We've talked about where is God when we hurt? We've uh, talked about, uh, is there a cure for anxiety? Or what, what is the cure for anxiety? And through those things, we've discovered that when we hurt, God is right beside us, hurting along with us. We've discovered that, uh, is there a cure for anxiety? Well, don't really know, but crying out to your Heavenly Father is a really, a really great place to start. So, um, so we've been diving into these emotions and, and what they are, but more importantly, we've been you know, figuring out what we should do with them. So what, what should we do with our emotions? We should engage them. We shouldn't try to stuff them down inside and hope they go away, because they don't. We should engage our emotions, but engage them in a healthy way. Engage them in a way that, that would honor God, that would be Christ-like. You know, our God is full, full of emotions, and, and since he created us in his image, we are emotional. We, we have emotions. And today, today we're going to talk about an emotion that can be probably, I would call it the most dangerous emotion we're going to be talking today about anger. Um, I'd like a little crowd participation here, okay? I'm going to switch this up from what I did last service. So I want you to show me, show me your angry face, like oh, a face like you make when you're really angry. Try not to look at your wife or husband or a significant other. How you doing? Show me your angry face. And if you're joining us at home, I know you can't, I can't see your angry face, so if, go ahead and throw up some of those angry emojis on Facebook. That'd be really fun to look at. Like, why were they so angry? I don't get it. But this is the face you make like when you're angry, right? So you're, you're gritting your teeth, you are, you know, your blood pressure's rising, your face is getting flush, you might even be drooling a little bit and not even realize it. Okay, thank you, thank you guys. I think some of you are still making your angry face. Um, so two things to note here about anger and why, why it can be so dangerous. Okay, number one, anger is never content to just sit idle. Anger's not okay with like, just being. And then number two, anger, more than any other emotion, demands to be satisfied by action. So anger, more than any other emotion, it demands to be satisfied by action, usually right away. So anger makes us do a lot of crazy things. It, it makes us do a lot of things that are outside of our character. So take, take my kids, for instance. So I have, if you don't know this, I have four kids who are in range from the ages of five to one. And, yeah, five to one. I'll say that again. And, um, you know, they're great kids. I love them. They, they are just really great. Uh, they're God-loving kids. They, for the most part, they're very respectful. But uh, So let's just take my daughter, Penelope. So she is five, and she is probably one of the most loving kids that you could ever be around. She's the most ener- one of the most energetic kids I've ever been around, too. And she's one of those kids that compliments you, like, for even things that... You don't want to be complimented for? Like, oh, daddy, your belly looks so big. It's great. Like, 
Yeah, she's one of those kids. That is until you tell her to do something she doesn't want to do. And then what does she do? She starts stomping around the house. She starts throwing things. She starts screaming. She starts crying. I don't even know why she's crying. But she starts acting out of character. My son, Calvin, he's four. And he's one of those kids who he just gets it. Like He understands what you want to tell him. Like Even to the point where you have to be careful what you tell him because then he'll hold it against you later. He's one of those kids. But he's a really sweet kid until you, again, tell him to do something he doesn't want to do. Or if maybe his sisters turn on that Barbie or Frozen show again, then he does one of these things. He gets like a... I don't even understand how he can get his lip out that far, honestly. But he starts acting out of character. You know, so before we start talking about anger and before we get into what it is, I want to confess something to you guys. I don't have it all together. I don't have the answer to all the answers to being angry. I don't. I haven't. I, don't, I haven't followed some uh, count to ten program that has really helped me in my life with anger. I'm still trying to figure this out. Now, if you don't know me, I'm typically a pretty easygoing guy. It takes quite a bit to make me angry. I hope none of you have ever seen my angry side. Um, well, so you really want to, you want to know how to see my angry side? Uh, you do? Okay, good. I was just making sure. All right, so I'm really an easygoing guy. And one of the side effects of being so easygoing is the fact that uh, I get, I'm too easygoing until it's too late. So what happens, so example, we have to be somewhere, and we have to be there in 15 minutes. I'm still sitting on the couch, just being easy, nothing. Oh, wait, we have to go. And by the way, I have four kids. Did I mention that? So we have to get them ready. So we have to make sure that they have their clothes on, that their shirts are on the right way, that their pants aren't on backwards, that their hair is relatively brushed, uh, that they put their shoes on. Maybe, well, we have to make sure they put their socks on before they put their shoes on, because that's a thing, apparently. You have to get their jackets on, because that's cold. And then you have to get them into the car, and you have to put their car seats on. So what I'm getting at is this can be a pretty stressful time. So what happens to me when I get angry is... I start acting out of character. So what do I do? I start yelling. I start, let's go, let's go, let's get going. Although it's my fault that we're actually this way. But I rush us to get, you know, rush all of us to get to the door. We get there. We wind up forgetting something. So then what happens is everybody around me is mad, mostly my wife. So what I'm getting out by that example is to show you that I don't have this all together. I'm still working to figure out anger and how to engage it in a healthy way, in a Christ-like way. But God has anger figured out. And I think we can learn a lot from him if we look to him. So let me ask you a question right now. When was the last time that you were angry? When was the last time you were angry? Maybe it was a couple days ago. Maybe it was a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was on the way here today. Maybe if you're joining us online, your internet wasn't working very well, and everybody get, anybody get mad when your internet just doesn't work? Yeah, technology's great until it isn't. Maybe, just maybe you're sitting here right now in this very moment, and you're angry. You're angry at your family. You're angry at the world and the way that it is right now. Maybe you're angry at God. You see, the human mind and body experience all sorts of emotions, but anger, like I said earlier, 
is perhaps the most dangerous. And why? Because it makes us act out of character. Just ask my wife when she sees Angry Mike. That's not me. I don't even recognize that person. So another question I have for you. Is it possible to be angry and not sin? Is that actually possible? I mean, Paul tells us in Ephesians, uh, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity to let this anger fester. Like, is it possible to be angry and not sin? And just to answer this question, anger is not a sin. It's not sinful to be angry. It's It's something that we feel. It's typically what we do out of anger that becomes a sin. And today, we're going to be looking at a time when Jesus got angry. I mean, like, real angry, like probably like the drool out of the side of your mouth, angry. Like, he got real angry. We're going to be in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. So before I read that, allow me to kind of set the scene here. So I usually really like to do this. And if, if you're one of those people who, do, who reads devotionals, um, I just encourage you to read the verses before and after those. Don't just stick with the devotional. Like, open up your Bible and physically read it. Because we can often miss the context of what's actually happening. So, what's happening here as we read this, or before we read this, is that this is uh, the triumphal entry, as it's called in Scripture. This is where Jesus is uh, entering the Jerusalem during the Passover festival on a cult. And there's, there's people that are lining the streets so excited to see him. And they're so excited that what are they doing? They're tearing branches off of trees and they're laying them on the ground. They're, they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna the son of David. And they're basically, what Hosanna means is praise, adoration. They're basically saying, the Savior is here. So you have to imagine that Jesus is probably pretty jazzed about what's happening. And his disciples are, well... Maybe his disciples were not so much Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what, he's here, what he was there to do. So what does Jesus do after this height of emotions where he's, all this craziness and all this awesome stuff is happening? Well, he goes to the temple. And that's where we pick up this story. So let's go to Matthew 21. We're going to be in verses 12 and 13. It says, Jesus went into the temple. And he threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of thieves. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of thieves. That escalated quickly. All right. So Jesus enters the temple where he goes to worship his, his father, worship God, or, or to maybe tell a parable or two, or you know, do the things that Jesus did. But what does he see upon entering the temple? Well, he actually sees a madhouse of what's happening. So he sees money changers with money and all types of foreign currencies and everything on their tables, and probably arguing back and forth with their customers. He sees animals being sold, and yet again, probably more chaos ensuing there. And all these people are trying to do as they're trying to go, and they're just trying to worship God. Because this is during the Passover festival. So Jew, the Jewish people, they had festivals that they observed. And the Passover one was the one where they got, remember where God passed over them and didn't you know, kill their firstborn. So at this time, 
we see that during the Passover festival, generally in in Jerusalem, there was about 40,000 people in the first century. But during these festivals, and especially Passover, there was something more of like a quarter of a million people there. So there was a ton of people that were already there. And all they're trying to do, they're just trying to worship God. The problem is they can't, because the particular people I'm talking about right now that Jesus saw upon entering the temple were the Gentiles, were the foreigners. So any history buffs out there? Does anybody like history? Okay, I think I got one back in the production booth. I got a couple up here. Okay. So I love history. So back in 19 BC, so this is 19 years before the year started counting up, Herod extended the temple, or built, added on to the temple. And what it, what it created was this kind of courtyard. And it, it was eventually called the Court of the Gentiles because whether Herod wanted people to be more in awe of the temple or maybe just have a place for those Gentiles, those foreigners to go that was away from the temple, he just created this whole thing. So what Jesus sees upon entering of the temple is he's walking into the court of the Gentiles. And just to give you a little layout of the land, so the temple itself is, the, you know, it's called Temple Mount because it's on a mountain that's big. And so in order to get there, you had to walk up stairs. And so, and the thing about the stairs where they were enclosed, so you couldn't really see anything around you. You're just basically walking up this hallway of stairs. So as Jesus is walking up these stairs, you have to imagine that about halfway through, he starts hearing the commotion of everybody yelling at each other and bartering and doing what they do. But then when he takes that last step, when he gets to the top of the steps, then he sees what is actually happening. He's, he sees the scene that we just described, which is a madhouse. It's chaos. You see, the, the problem wasn't that, that these people that Jesus saw that were selling things and, and exchanging money and doing it for an honest profit or an just honest business at all. You know, it's, that's not what was happening. These people were coming to offer their sacrifices to God. So often the journey of a Gentile as they would walk in or a foreigner as they would walk in, they would see the money changers. And in the temple, they only took one form of currency. So you would have to get your money exchanged. So what they were doing was something like, in a modern-day context, it's like you go to, to Europe or something and say you need to get euros. So you take your 100 American dollars, and you get it exchanged, and, and you get back five euros. It was literal highway robbery. And another thing to note of why they had animals available for people to buy in the temple was oftentimes it was a lot more of a hassle to bring your animal with you, especially if you're traveling from far away, which most of these people were. So what they would do is they would sell their animal at their home, at their home wherever their home was at, for the market price, They'd take that money, and they would expect to get something similar back, but they weren't getting that at all. So these people, after they exchanged their money, they would take their five euros or whatever it happened to be. Well, I think it was like shekels. And they would go, and they would expect, you know, as they're entering the temple, that they're going to be able to have a sheep to sacrifice. But instead, what do they get? A pigeon. Or worse, they don't get anything. All because these money changers... And everybody were basically making it impossible for them to worship God. So another thing to note here about the scripture is that um, Jesus, after turning some tables and and kicking some chairs and (laughs) chasing people out, he tells people exactly why he's angry, which is actually some good advice that we can do. He says, 
you are turning my, you, this is said that my house is going to be a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of thieves. And what he's doing there is he's actually quoting Isaiah 56. Jesus quoted scripture often. It's a good thing to do. But in Isaiah 56, if we look there, um, and so Isaiah was a prophet of God. So a prophet is somebody who speaks, or God speaks through them, or they speak on behalf of God. So in Isaiah 56, let's start at chapter, uh, verse 3. It says, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. So no foreigner slash Gentile who has joined himself to the Lord should say that the Lord will exclude me from his people. We jump down to verse 6, which is right there. It says, as for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant. So everybody who worships me, worships God, I will bring them to my holy mountain, and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. So I will bring them to Jerusalem and let them rejoice in the temple. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not just you, Israel. Because you see, the thing is that the priests were allowing all this chaos to happen. Because they didn't want the Gentiles in the temple. Jesus sees these foreigners and out of his love, not just for God, but out of his love for them and out of what God has, has said, he gets angry. Jesus gets angry. A couple of things that we can learn from Jesus' anger right here um, in the temple is, number one, Jesus, when he got upset or when he got angry, he was angry for other people. He wasn't mad because the priests were allowing this extortion ring to happen in the temple. He was mad because that certain extortion ring was preventing people from worshiping God. Jesus got mad on behalf of other people, not because those people were offending him, which in fact, since he is the son of God, they were. Number two, Jesus turned tables, not people. Jesus turned tables, not people. He didn't go right up to that money changer and punch him right in the face. Even though by all worldly standards, he probably had a right to. Jesus turned tables, not people. He, he turned the tables, and these tables represented more than just like money on a table or anything like that. Like these tables represented a system of prejudice. They represented a system of corruption. And Jesus, they represented a system of something that was preventing people from worshiping God. So what did Jesus do? He turned them over, sent them scattering on the ground. And the third thing that Jesus did was after tossing some tables and reading the court of the Gentiles of all the unholy things that were happening there, he went back to being Jesus. He went back to being Jesus. So we, you know, and that's why earlier I was talking about how when you're reading scripture or reading something, make sure you get the whole context of what's actually happening because it's easy to miss this because this happens after the so-called cleansing of the temple. If we look at verse, 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 verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So when Jesus got angry, the third thing he would do, or the third thing he did, is he went right back to being Jesus. He healed people. He helped them. He did exactly what he was there to do. So are, are we noticing a trend here? Are we noticing a trend of what happens when Jesus gets angry? 
When Jesus got angry, his focus was outward. His focus wasn't on how he felt, necessarily. His focus was on the systems that were preventing people from worshiping God. His focus was on something other than his own thoughts, feelings, and emotions. I mean, we can, we can really learn something from Jesus and how he reacted to his anger, but the first thing that we really need to focus on and understand is that we're not Jesus. Jesus is the only person who has ever walked on this earth who has not sinned. Most of us, we've either sinned before we got here, we're either going to sin later before we go to bed. That's Unfortunately, that's the nature of our fallen world. It doesn't make it right that you know, we sin, but this is the nature of what it is. Jesus didn't sin. So he was held to a different standard. So what I wanted to do is ask us, you know, so how, as I'm trying to process, how do we be angry and not sin? And, you know, is it actually possible to do that? Is it actually possible? Since I just noted it's so easy to sin. I think it is. And I'm, what I'm going to do is, Brandon last week introduced a four-week or four, four-step process on uh, how to engage your emotions in a healthy way and maybe a Christ-like way. And so what I wanted to do is use that, use it for anxiety, but I want to use it for anger. So the four steps are to identify, to examine, to evaluate, and then to act. So identify, examine, evaluate, and act. So the first step is just to identify that you're angry. Am I angry now? Yes, I am angry. Okay. So we all have our triggers. We all have our things that make us angry and everything that sets us off. And that that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to avoid those things. It just means that if those things happen, which inevitably inevitably they will, we need to realize that we are angry. A side note here. Annoyance, frustration, and irritation are all still anger. Maybe it's anger that hasn't fully blossomed yet. But if, if if you've been sitting here and telling yourself... Oh, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. I'm, I'm not angry. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just really annoyed right now, or I'm irritated. Fill in the blank. You're still angry, so you need to identify that, and that's okay. So recognizing this and embracing this will go a long way to helping you get to a point where you can identify that you're angry. So we've identified that we're angry. Second step: examine. So we're going to examine our anger. So we're going to peel back some more layers, and we're going to ask ourselves a couple of questions. First question is, why am I angry? Why am I angry? You know, sometimes, and this is actually a good piece of advice, sometimes just saying out loud why you're angry will actually make you not be angry anymore because you realize how ridiculous you sound. You'll realize that maybe I shouldn't be upset about this. So ask yourself... Why am I angry? The second question we need to ask ourselves is what is the outcome of my anger? What, what happens after my anger? Will, will the world and, and the world of those around me be a better place because of my anger? Or will, after I unleash my wrath on everybody, will, will I hurt people? Will I hurt myself? So we need to engage this. We need to say, why am I angry? We need to figure out that. And we need to ask what would the outcome of my anger be? It's a fair question, so we need to ask those. So we have, all right, bear with me. We've identified and we've examined. 
So we've identified that we're angry. We've asked why we're angry and what is the outcome of our anger. The next step is to evaluate our anger. Now, evaluating your anger, side note, is a little tricky. So, and the reason it's tricky is that it can be really easy to feel righteous in your anger. But you need to ask yourself this question when you're evaluating your anger. Is what I'm upset about right now, what I'm angry about right now, is it something that God would be angry about? When it's something that I'm angry about right now, would, would God be angry about this as well? You know, despite what you might have been told, God does get angry. And uh, not because, you know, he wants us to be in pain or to suffer. He, God gets angry because he loves us so much that he wants to see us turn to him and repent of what we're doing. So if you evaluate your anger and you see that, in fact, you are angry about what God is angry about, then you might be on the right path. Word of warning, though. And this is why I said evaluating is a little tricky. It's easy to hear your own voice and mistake it for God's voice. It's easy to hear something that you feel is righteous and right, when in fact it's not your voice, it's God's voice. It's really easy to feel strongly that you're right about something when, when in fact you haven't done enough digging. And really what, the, what is underneath it all, what, what the root cause of your anger is, is your desire to be right. You know, God doesn't desire us to be right all the time. God desires us to love all the time. You know, he, even when it's hard to love someone, he desires us to love. He, he devoted, there's an entire chapter in the Bible that, that is devoted almost to love. Well, there's actually quite a few chapters that are devoted to love. But 1 Corinthians 13, if you've been to a wedding before, if you've been to your, your friend's house who believes in God, and you, you might have seen some, some artwork on the wall that said it, but it says, like, love is patient, love is kind, love is this, love is this. So after Paul explains what love is, he doesn't go off and say, now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and being right. But the greatest of these is being right. He doesn't say that. He says, but the greatest of these, now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So as you evaluate your anger, I just wanted to make that side note to make sure that your anger is coming from a place of love, not coming from a place of self-righteousness. So if we've identified we're angry, we've examined that we're angry, and we've evaluated we're angry, now the last step is to act. So now we get to do the thing that, as I said before, right, anger more than any other emotion demands to be satisfied with action. So now we get to act on our anger. The main point that I'm trying to make through this four-step process, which is it's been teaching me a lot, and I hope it's been teaching you too, but it's been teaching me to slow down. When I'm feeling an emotion, slow down. Do the steps. You know, there's actually a, a place in the Bible. It's in James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. So verse 19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. And slow to anger. You've probably heard it before if you've been in church. But you, often, we sometimes we miss the next verse, which is verse 20. It says, For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. If our anger 
is not fueled by what upsets God and the things that make God angry, then it's human anger. It's human anger. And as we just read, it doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. So, if you are angry, please slow down. Here's the key to this working out. Here's the key to what, how, how we make this four-step process an actual thing, and it actually can be something that we can use. Do you, know, do you want to know what it is? It's humility. The key is humility. You see, if you get anything from this sermon at all, okay, if you guys are still with me, I want you to get this. Maybe write it down. Righteous anger cultivates humility. Righteous anger cultivates humility. Anger that aligns with God's anger will always bring about more humility in your life. If you're constantly struggling with anger, if you're always angry about something, maybe do a little more digging. See why. Try to figure out why you're angry. You know, maybe, maybe you're sinning in your anger and you don't even realize it. Because you haven't done the steps, you haven't taken the time, you haven't slowed down to see why. You know, one of the biggest problems is what I think I kind of alluded to it, but, you know, as being human, and I'll even throw this out there being in America. I mean, an American gives us this innate desire to be right about everything. You see, there's, there's really only one right way to do things, and that's God's way. Any other path will lead to destruction. It'll lead to death. It'll lead to self-righteousness. So make sure that our anger is cultivating humility. So I wanted to take a moment here, and I wanted to posture myself with humility. So bear with me. It's a long way down. See, when we're angry, one of the things that we tend to do is we try to posture ourselves above the other person. Or maybe even that object that we're angry about. We fight so hard to be right about everything and and to be the person who comes out on top. That's not how God wants us to act. It's not the way to unity. If you've seen any of the events of everything that's been happening in our world lately, you'll see the effects of people who are posturing themselves above other people. You know, sometimes we even try to posture ourselves above God. I don't know about you, but I make a pretty terrible God. You see, the ultimate act of humility is surrender. It's complete and total, all-out, gut-wrenching surrender where you get down on your knees, you throw your hands in the air, and you say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It's doing the things that our society tells us that don't do that. Don't love that person because they'll inherently turn around and betray you and they'll turn their back on you at the time when you need them the most it's it's the things that when it's, a, it's the thing that says that love you do not love the 
people who are different than you. Don't love people who look different than you. Don't love people who vote different than you. Don't love people who don't do the things you do. It's the thing that says, give that person a piece of your mind on Facebook. Because putting them down, making them wrong will make you right. No, it's, it's not about that. It's not the posture God wants us to take. It's when we finally surrender to the will of God, to the will of Jesus and what he wants in our lives, that we will start to cultivate true humility. I believe it's something that we need. You know, this, this world, guys, it's headed to, down a path that makes me angry. But what I need to do is I need to get down on my knees and I need to pray to the one who can really actually fix it. I don't know about you, but I think this is something, there's something that's so powerful about when we do things together. So if you're willing and able, and I'm going to emphasize willing and able to assume this posture and then get back up from this posture. I'm just going to invite you to do that with me right now. What we're going to do is we're going to pray. I'm going to guide us through it. But we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to really search us. We're going to assume a posture of surrender, assume a posture of not being above God, not being above anything. And I'm so thankful that we have a God who gets angry when we don't turn to him. I'm so thankful that, that he cares enough about our little individual lives to where he actually wants to involve himself. So I'm going to pray. And I'm just, like I said, I'll guide us through it. But And once we're done praying, the band's going to come up and they're going to play a song. And, and I just ask that in that time we assume a posture of worship, which will be whether you be right where you're at right now or you stand up and you get to praise your God for the amazing grace that he has on our lives. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning or this afternoon, whatever time it is, and we, we acknowledge, God, that we're living in a world and in a time where it's more apparent that we need you. God, we need you. Let's pray and let's let God know that we need him. Father, we ask that you take any anger, any, any emotion that we're feeling right now, that anything that's not of you, anything, any self-righteous feelings that we have, God, and we turn to you today. God, we repent of all the times that we attempted to posture ourselves ahead of another person, ahead of you. God, give us the eyes to see that we need to love others, God, even when it's hard. We need to, to cultivate humility in our lives, God. Show us how to do that.
God, we, we thank you so much for your mercy and for your grace. God, you're above everything. You're ab- above, above this world, above any feelings that we have. You, you are above it all. Father, we, we thank you so much that you want to be in our mess, that you want to enter into it. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that, that you sent him to show us the ultimate example of humility. Father, allow us to be more like him every day. God, hear us as we sing to you and we praise you. We thank you so much and we pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.